Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. Do you like this show? Do you find it useful? A five-star rating and review on iTunes or your podcast player of choice goes a long way toward helping others find it too. Do it now while you've got your phone out. Also, the ADHD Parent Coaching Groups will resume the week of January 20th. Get in now before the slots fill up. Consider it a gift to yourself and your family. Visit ADHDessentials.com slash parent groups for more details. As usual, the links will be in the show notes. This is episode 46. Today, we're talking to Keith Griffin. Keith is an ADHD coach and host of This ADHD Life on YouTube. He's also got a webinar on surviving the holidays with ADHD that's coming up through the Attention Deficit Disorder Association. The links for those will be in the show notes as well. Today's episode ended up being more of a chat than an interview, but it was a chat that Keith and I greatly enjoyed. We discuss information overload, guiding questions, the importance of self-advocacy, and how to do less. All right, let's get rolling. You run This ADHD Life. That is correct. Which is a YouTube channel? It's a YouTube channel. It's an occasional podcast. It's my coaching website. Um, it's a philosophy, whatever you want to say. So um, I guess, how did, you get, how did you get to This ADHD Life? <laughs> well, I was born. Uh, no, you know, it's funny. It actually does have a tie into this American life. Um, I think I didn't consciously go, Hey, I want to copy this American life, but I did want something for folks that have ADHD and I'm a later in life diagnosed uh, folk, person with ADHD. And so when I was going through domain names and I, I mentioned kind of in the, before we started recording, I have like 140 something domains. So I have a bunch of different ADHD domains, but this ADHD life just kind of stuck with it. And, you know, it's kind of, it's funny, it's been morphing recently, or at least in my mind, it's morphed because it, it is targeted at folks with officially diagnosed ADHD. But I also realize that today's lifestyle can cause everybody to think they have a bit of ADHD. So yeah. it's kind of trying to encompass the world as well. That idea that today's lifestyle sort of makes everyone feel like they have ADHD that's a thing that I actually fight against a little bit sometimes because it's a, it's sort of invalidating for folks who really do have ADHD. Yep. The metaphor that I most commonly use to sort of counter that uh, approach is um, asthma. And I'll talk about how, yeah, if we're in a smoky room, people are going to be coughing. It's going to be a little hard, harder for them to breathe. But those of us with asthma, like myself, it's a much more dangerous situation. Um, you could, I could have my asthma get triggered. I could die if I don't have my medication with me. It could be really bad. So sort of the same idea where our culture is getting more distracting and we ADHD folks are sort of the canaries in the coal mine a little bit in my mind. Yeah. So the metaphor that I use is that what I am experiencing as an, an ADHD adult now, um, <clears throat> 
is what the average person will experience in 10 to 20 years from now. And so what I experienced 20 years ago is what everybody's experiencing right now. I don't, it's not a perfect metaphor. I don't have any idea if it's true, but it's just kind of the way that I look at it, that things that are distracting to me right now and might not be to the average person will be in 20 years. And I can just imagine what the world will be like for, for someone with ADHD in 20 years. I just, uh, unless we finally return back to like slower information. How do we navigate that? Do you have any, any tips or thoughts or anything poking around in your head? around what to do with that, and especially my audience where the kids of the parents who are listening and maybe even kids who are listening as well, those kids are going to be adults in 10 or 20 years. Uh, recently, I've been thinking a lot about information, and there's a quote that I have saved somewhere for a future podcast um, from IBM, and it's, it's uh, we, we are just not, as humans, designed to deal with the level of information that we're receiving. And so I think one of the, the strategies to deal with uh, this, this life is to really pare down the information that you're going to allow into your life and the information you're going to allow to be important. I was thinking that yesterday when I, I went into the car, I have Sirius XM. It was tuned to MSNBC because I tend to be a talk radio head. Um, a little bit, and they were talking about the uh, the race in Florida, the governor's race in Florida. And I thought to myself, as an adult living in Georgia, I really don't care about the governor's race in Florida. I mean, I do, but at the same time, it affects me in no way, shape, or form because the governor has no powers up here in Georgia. And so that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of how much of this news and information that we're getting every day and every week is really relevant to our lives. And if we started to pare it down, could we become less distracted? And, and I think particularly for myself, less anxious. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I actually have had, I want to say several, but I'm only going to say a few clients where part of my treatment plan for them is that they need to watch less television news yeah and half the time it's not for the adults it's for the kids i've walked into so many houses where the tv's just on even when i'm coming they know i'm going to be there and the tv's still on and it's on tuned into fox news msnbc cnn whatever and then they're like yeah our kid is super anxious and we don't know why and i'm like because he's watching the news all the time doesn't really get it but is finally old enough to think that it matters and you should care about it. And the news is designed to make us anxious. Like that's how they get viewers. They want us to be scared because fear is a motivator and makes you want to watch television or makes you want to watch the news to find out what's going on, I should say, and makes you want to do something. But there's nothing this kid can do. And even as adults, there's a lot of nothing that we can do. So of course it's going to up the anxiety. I'm like, just watch less news. Yeah. News is designed to be a negative information source. That, right. that, I mean, that is it. Like how often do you really hear about good news? It's so infrequent that there are certain sites that bring you just good news these days. Of course, they're not the ones that are popular. You know, riffing on that a little bit, you could, could get into YouTube habits. And I've seen that with, with younger clients as well is the, <laughs> the number of opinions and people willing to tell you how to do whatever on YouTube is just limitless. I, I did make the joke to my spouse the other day that I had completed watching YouTube. It, it, it is just amazing. Like, you know, if you're a young girl and you want makeup tips, I think there are hundreds of thousands of videos on that. If you want to learn about how classic elevators worked, there are tens of thousands of videos. On, <laughs> there's like 75 videos on the downfall of Sears. And Minecraft, my guys are constantly watching videos about Minecraft. 
yeah, Minecraft and, and cooking. And, and it's so, so, so it's not necessarily negative in, in YouTube, but it's more people telling you what to do all the time and how to do things, which can lead you to think, oh, I'm just not doing things right. And it also can lead down a rabbit hole where you're just spending hours on YouTube instead of getting homework done or going out and socializing, playing with friends, interacting with family and getting sleep. One of the things that I count myself lucky at for is that our television can show YouTube. So my kids watch YouTube on TV. And the reason that that's good, the reason that I like that is because I can see what they're watching. It's much easier for me to monitor that. And one of my concerns about YouTube is there's people spreading hate on YouTube and they're sneaky about it. There's people who are making Minecraft videos and then throwing in like a white supremacist agenda in there or anything else, you know, like whatever, whatever the hate du jour is that they want to throw, they start throwing that out there as though it's nothing to worry about. And they're targeting kids. That's the plan. So I'm super careful about what I let my kids watch and I monitor it as tightly as I can. Um, and I've trained my kids around that too. I've taught them to pay attention as best they can. And if, if you hear the YouTube person insulting or talking poorly of anybody, you got to let me know if there's swearing involved, you got to let me know. And they do, they come up to me, they'll say stuff like, dad, we watched three videos with this guy. And on the third one, he said, damn, and we don't think we should worry about that, but we thought we should tell you. And I'm like, let me see what it is all about. And then I'm Googling stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I, <clears throat> I'm going to say this phrase several times. If I had a number one tip for parents, uh, but seriously, one of the, the tips is no devices in the bedroom. I really sort of lament the demise of the iPod because I think having music in, in a kid's bedroom is a great idea. Um, mm -hmm. If I had a number one tip for, for parents, it would be <laughs> use music during the kid's morning routine because it not only brings some energy uh, into the routine, but it can kind of sequence what's happening. You can sort of tie that, oh, okay, this song's now playing, so it's time to go brush my teeth. But I encourage parents not to allow cell phones inside of the bedroom, No, definitely no TVs inside of the bedroom, uh, except maybe if the, ch the child's on a sick day, maybe have a portable TV that you can wheel in. Mm -hmm. I say that because I actually have a TV on a cart that if I'm have taken a couple sick days, I can wheel it right into the bedroom. Otherwise there's no TV in the bedroom. I fully support this plan. Yeah. There's just, there's no point, even for adults, there's no point to having screens inside of the bedroom aside maybe from a Kindle. Um, and like I said, having a music player, I think that's a, a great idea, but unfortunately society has moved past having a device that's just a music player. Even getting away from the notion of like the kids staying up late watching television or the kids staying up late looking at YouTube videos on their phone or something. That's a concern. But even more significant than that is specifically the phone. Because now that your kid's got a connection to the outside world, and even if you're raising your kid to be responsible and to make good decisions, that is not the case for every single one of their friends. The last thing you want is your kid getting a text message at two in the morning from their friend who is in bad shape and is trying to get that support from your kid because now they're 16, 17 years old or, or 12, 13 years old. To me, that's the number one reason to get phones out of the bedroom. Not because we don't want that kid to get support, but because if your kid is talking about how much his parents stink because they won't let him have a phone in their room, 
that kid who is in need of help is going to turn somewhere else and hopefully to a better place. Yeah, absolutely. And and I have to say that as a, a, an adult with ADHD, I am so glad cell phones didn't exist back when I was in my teens. My impulse control in my teens was much, much worse than it is today. And even today, I struggle sometimes with impulse control issues. So aside from the, from the, the constant being available for people, um, there is a whole range of stuff you can do on a smartphone today that just is not a smart thing to do when you're a teenager. These are, are scary little devices sometimes. Yeah, they're sort of the best thing ever for ADHD and the worst thing ever for ADHD. Exactly. <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. New <laughs> iPhone XS. Yeah, right. It'll help you remember all the things you need to remember and then help you not do those things because you're on YouTube or playing a video oh, game. Oh my goodness. So, so let's, let's talk about that for a minute. I'm actually going to look at my task management app, which I, I really had, a, I had, to, had to really think about this um, a little while ago, because if you look at my task management app, I have 1,022 tasks. Holy cow. But the thing is that I've really translated this into these are ideas. So a lot of them are someday maybe type ideas. They're, they're things that I need to get out of my head. So for those listening that haven't heard of it, there was a book called Getting Things Done published, God, at least 10 years ago now, maybe, maybe further. That was uh, what I call the worst time management book ever published. But unfortunately, it's seen as the Bible amongst many. <laughs> Um, I mean, it was just, it's a horrible book. It, it, it has some good concepts. One of them is empty your head, capture everything. And for an ADHD, or I think that's very important. It can sound daunting as well, but I do carry around a notepad in my wallet. I have a note taker type wallet. I have an app on my phone called Drafts, so I can do stuff into it. I can dictate into Siri. I have echoes all around the house so I can just yell at it and say, add this to my task list. Because what I find for myself is if, if I don't get that stuff out of my mind, it's going to keep popping up and it's going to drive me crazy. The problem is it then winds up in this, this bucket, this system, and I have 1,022 things. And I used to get stressed by it, but now I realize, you know what, these are just ideas that my mind had and not every idea is of equal importance. So it's okay that it's captured. It doesn't mean I ever have to do anything about it. So when it comes time to do a weekly review, a monthly review, a daily review, um, I don't go looking at a thousand things. I go looking at maybe the top hundred that I have decided on and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do this week. This is what I'm going to do today. Even the top hundred is a lot for me. I'm <laughs> like three. I'm doing three things today. That's it. That's all I'm doing. And admittedly, some of those are like umbrellas. So one of those things might be meeting with clients. I'm not counting each individual client as one thing, but three, that's all. I'm, that's the most you're going to get me to commit to. And, I'm, and other stuff might happen. That's not uncommon. Often I am doing other stuff, but I kept myself at three because otherwise it's just a road to disaster. Well, so, so here's the other neat thing. And this is one of the better concepts also from the book. I call it the worst book, but in some ways it's good. Is It starts to define a project as anything that takes more than two actions to complete. So a homework project, you know, if you, if you need to do a paper, there can be 50 actions that have to do, be done in order to support that paper. Mm -hmm. um, and in a, in a common thing, and it's kind of funny, this is a really outdated reference because none of us change light bulbs anymore thanks to LEDs. But the task of changing a light bulb, uh, it's really a project if you don't have any light bulbs and you need to go to the garage and get a ladder right? Because you have the task of go get the ladder, the task of check for light bulbs, the chat task of go to Home Depot and buy light bulbs. And so that's some of the reasons I might have a hundred tasks during a week is that 
if I'm recording a podcast, it's, you know, plan the podcast, record the podcast, edit the podcast, publish the podcast, market the podcast. So you're breaking that task into the smaller component tasks that make it up. Yeah. When, when it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in uh, a month from now, when we record this, I will be decorating for Christmas and there will be a task called decorating for Christmas. And while that technically is a project, for me, it's just like a three to four hour affair where I'm bringing stuff up, decorating for Christmas, bringing stuff down. Right. This again is, it's (laughs) one of the reasons it's the worst book too, is it had a whole bunch of people thinking that, oh my God, everything, I mean, even cooking this recipe is a project. I got to break everything down into this minutia stuff. And that can kill an ADHD brain when we have to, when we start thinking that we're over planning stuff. So it's, uh, it's a fine line to me, you know, mm-hmm. it makes sense in some cases, in some cases it just doesn't make sense. One of my favorite questions is, is this useful? I started asking it of my clients and then it sort of moved into my real world and just stuff I do with myself, making myself my client, I guess. Um, and even my kids, like I did it with a, a, a client earlier today, he's writing, he's in the process of writing a thesis. He's finished the rough draft. Now he has to edit it. And he just couldn't break into this thing. He was feeling overwhelmed. There was a lot of emotionality and anxiety around trying to do something with this 173 page thesis. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. So what I did with him was I just took the thesis. I went and grabbed some sticky notes and I had him sticky note each section. So the introduction, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, et cetera. And it just chunked the thesis out. And I'm like, is this useful? And he said, yes. And I could see on his face the relief in looking at the thesis just because it had flags indicating the different sections. But if I had done anything more than that, if I had broken it down further or tried to, I don't think it would have been useful. So I didn't try to do anything further. I was just like, now do these steps that you're, liaison thesis advisor has already recommended that you do but even breaking it into smaller chunks helped them because he had one he had two chapters that he was like flip he's flipping through the pages to get to like chapter three or whatever from chapter two right and he's flipping 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 and i see on his face like when am i ever going to get to the next chapter and so when he was done sectioning it off i said so what'd you learn from this he sort of mocked me a little bit and he was like that I should break things into smaller chunks and I should use sticky notes. And I was like, yeah, but didn't you also learn that some of your chapters are too long? And he was like, yes. I was like, yeah, I saw your face. Like that's, that's the part I want you to feel. So one of them, he thinks he's gonna have to break into six different chapters. Oh my goodness. I'm hoping he's wrong about that. Cause that'll be a lot of work, but yeah. maybe two or three is a good. So breaking things into smaller chunks is great, but how far down should we go? That minutia, like you said. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's the difference between eating a watermelon and some grapes. The watermelon, you absolutely have to break down. If you're slicing your grapes, they better be going in chicken salad. Otherwise, uh, we're going to be having a conversation <laughs> about why you're doing that. So how do you help your clients break things down into smaller chunks? And to know when to stop breaking things down into smaller chunks, for that matter. You know, there, there's no one set rule, unfortunately. Like with coaching, every client is individual. And so you just kind of know, like you can hear in their voice or if you're seeing them in person, like you said, you can, you can see it in their face that it's like, oh, okay, the weight's lifted. You know, the, 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 the classic coaching question for me is, okay, or really as a statement, wow, that sounds like a lot 
And generally you'll get a minute of, oh yeah, I'm telling you, it's just so much. And I'm like, ah, so how could this be easier? Well, you know, if, if I only did like three pages of this tonight, that would be easy. I'm like, oh, okay, that's a start. And then, so how often would you be willing to do three pages? That, that might be one conversation. Mm-hmm. Not with a 173-page thesis, but, but um, <laughs> that's a lot. I just, I, I chuckle at it because I am in the midst of trying to figure out where I got my magical ADHD from. Mm-hmm. Um, because I can definitely see some signs in my mom. Um, yep. Then my father, um, who was a brilliant man, was a thesis away from a PhD uh, back in the 70s, and he just could not do a PhD. And so I sometimes wonder, huh, wonder if he had ADHD, and if he had a, had a coach or, or, or at least well-managed ADHD, could he have done that thesis? Yeah, I, I know this particular client contacted me because he had an incomplete thesis. And he was like, I need to get back to this master's program. I need to get this thesis done. So he probably wouldn't have a thesis if he hadn't found me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you know about giant post-it notes, by the way? Yes. Yeah. Well, depending on what you mean by giant post-it notes. Well, I'm talking about like half letter size post-it notes. Okay. I discovered these. I was, um, I was actually in a class um, a couple months ago and, and one of the instructors had them. And I'm like, oh, I never knew those existed. So I had to, I had to get a set and I love these things. Why? Um, because they're big enough that you're not going to try to design your productivity system around them. So you're not going to have seven of them on your monitor, or if you do, you're not going to see anything, but I like them because they stand out. So if you're trying to remember to bring something to school or to work, you can jot it down and put it on a, on the front door and it's not going to get lost. Like a small square post-it note would, would get lost. They're great on like a bathroom mirror for a morning routine and they're great just stuck around the house or in in a room with things that you want to remember, like positive affirmations Um, or, or, you know, just quotes, things that you want to remember about yourself. I have a client that I don't know if she still has it, but on her bathroom mirror, she wrote the word positivify, which obviously is not a word, but through one of our coaching sessions, she realized that she wanted more positivity in her life and it was up to her to create it. So when, and when anything negative came in, she would think about it and go, okay, is there any positive to this situation? And so every morning that she looked at her mirror, it said positivify. That's, I practice that pretty, pretty intensely, positivifying. Although I call it finding the awesome in the awful. Which grow, we're friends on Facebook, so I'm sure you've seen my today's awesome posts that happen yep. less frequently I've, than they used to. I'm sorry. I've considered stealing that format. Oh yeah, feel free. Yeah, absolutely. That the or I don't think I've told the origin of that on this uh, podcast. Which is, do you mind if I share that quickly? Well, I mean, since since it's your podcast, I think that would be allowable. <laughs> um, so I had the worst year of my life, hmm. where um, in one year my teaching career ended. Then um, my mom got sick. Mm. Then my mom died. And then my car burned down. And that's just the highlights. There was other crappy stuff in there too. Like I got the worst case of poison ivy I've ever had, but that so doesn't matter relatively. I was driving down the highway and all of a sudden I heard, and my hood popped up and flames just shot out of either side of it. And I was like, that's bad. <laughs> and then the car got sluggish. So I pulled over. Wait, so if the car hadn't gotten sluggish, you would have just kept driving? 
No, I still would have pulled over, oh, okay. but I, but just being trying to make sure I include all my details. Um, <laughs> so I get out of the car and grab my phone because I'm like, I'm going to have to call somebody probably. And inside of a minute, maybe two, there's a 50-foot pyre of flame coming off the hood of my car. And it melted. Like, it, it died. It was gone. And I remember standing on the side of the road and being like, I don't know what to do with this. Career ending, mom getting sick, mom dying, whatever other crappy stuff was happening at the time that I don't remember anymore. And now my car is burning down. Like, what do I, what do, I do with this? And so I decided that I had been looking at the awful too much, and I had to start looking at the awesome. On Facebook, it became today's awesome, blah, 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 right? That was the deal. I often say that the best thing that ever happened to me was my car burning down. Because for me, at least, you find what you look for. And I started looking for the positive and things got better. And even when stuff was crappy, I found something awesome in that day, even if it was just pancakes. I've seen, I remember seeing that post, going out to pancakes with the kids or making pancakes with the kids. Yeah, yeah sometimes that's the awesome. But some of it was the nature of what happened. If I'm convinced that if I had been in a car accident and that was what totaled my car, even if I didn't get injured at all, it would have broken me. Like I, I would have fallen into a depression, maybe become suicidal, who knows, but that's not what happened. It was just this like giant fire. <laughs> like that doesn't happen. Like it was just weird enough and epic enough for me to take a different perspective on it. What kind of car did you have that the detail oriented me? I want to know. It was a Subaru Forester. Oh, had gasket problem. It apparently the fuel injection backed up or something. That was the guess from the uh, fire marshal. And um, because I had to go and like talk to them to make sure it wasn't insurance fraud, I guess, but that's not what it was. And uh, the power of social media, I went to the Subaru dealer in my town where I had work done and stuff. I don't know, a day or two later, and they had already seen the picture I took. Wow. Yeah. Cause I posted it on Facebook, but that once, you know, and then I head over there and I'm like, Hey, and they had already seen it. So I was like, wow, that's crazy that you already know about it. You just didn't know who it was. It's interesting because we, we have a sort of similar story, although mine was compressed in the course of a month. Is that what launched you into coaching and doing a podcast and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My teaching career ending did. Yeah, like my the end of my teaching career, I was like, I'm going to either be a guidance counselor or an ADHD coach, one of the two. And then I went back to grad school. And so it's sort of like it was in there, but it, it wasn't like I have to do this now as a result of all of the things. It was just like, what's the next career move? Like now what do I do? So I got the license in guidance counseling and did the ADHD stuff. So what is your story? Oh God, my story is is fun. Um, so my journey to the ADHD diagnosis was, was wading into trying to treat depression, um, which wound up not really being depression at all because none of the depression meds worked. But, you know, we, we go back, I quit my job. They didn't let me do that. Instead, they let me work from home. Um, I was going to therapy at the time and the, the gentleman asked me a question that was very profound. So I quit my job again. Did this? I gave my um, I gave them a month's notice. We definitely have to circle back to what that question was if you're comfortable with it. But keep going. Well, I'll think about that. But yeah, um, so I quit my job, and and three days later, um, I was going on a cruise and getting married. Right. So so on a Wednesday, I turn in my one month notice, 
uh, and then I'm going to be flying up to Seattle to get married and then going on a cruise for the week. Wow. And I come back and um, I'm still, I'm starting to work my notice and all of a sudden my father winds up in the hospital. And within the course of a week, he goes from the hospital to in hospital hospice and then dies. Holy cow. Like the course of a week and I'm a newlywed and I've quit my job. And throughout the whole hospice process, my company's giving me problems with taking FMLA. And I wind up talking to the CEO who convinces me to stay. So now I've quit my job twice and said, okay, I'll stay twice. Um, I come back home. This is, this is pre-ADHD diagnosis. And I go, huh, I don't think anything's going to change. And my car is 13 years old, so I better buy a new one before I quit again. So I go out <laughs> on Tuesday, I buy a new car. I go into the office Thursday and I say, I just ask one question. I said, so, hey, friends, what am I going to be doing today? Oh, well, they've told us you're going to do this, this, and this. I said, ah, so nothing changed. They don't actually want to talk to me and ask me what I want to do. All right. I go over to the office manager uh, and boy, I, I, this is an IT killing uh, interview, but IT career killing interview. But I go to the office manager. I said, Felicia, I'm about to write a letter that's going to require you to walk me out later today. And I just wanted to give you that heads up no ill will between us. And I sit down and I write an email and I'm a perfectionist. So it takes me an hour and a half. I hit send and I sit back and sure enough, they come over and walk me out and then I'm done. Right. And this was within the course of a month that I, I got married, went on my honeymoon, saw my father get ill, um, really had to advocate for his death. I mean, you'd be surprised at how hard the human body fights back at ending itself, even when it's required. Yeah, we, we experienced that with my mom. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Bought a new car and quit my job. Really quit my job twice within the course of a couple months. Wow, um, it sounds like three times even, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then I kind of floated for about a year. Um, finally got an ADHD diagnosis thanks to a new therapist who said, hey, I'm detecting a touch of ADHD. Maybe you should go see my colleague. I went, passed with flying colors, got the ADHD toaster, which if you've never heard me say this, it's a wonderful toaster. The only problem is it burns all of your toast because it forgets you've put toast down. <laughs> and then started seeing that therapist who said, okay, Keith, you're not going back to IT apparently, at least not right now. Let's talk about things. Maybe you could be an ADHD coach. And I said, they don't exist. And that's, that was back in God, 2015 when I went to my first chat conference and I went, huh, these, this, this is a career. Mm -hmm. uh, and haven't looked back since, but yeah, that I, I had that month. Your, your year was kind of my month. Um, yeah. and I look back at it now and I'm like, I wonder if I had a slight nervous breakdown during that time. I don't know. I can't go back and see, but yeah, I know that I had at least panic attacks during the course of my struggles. Yeah. Cause I can remember sitting on the couch and being like, this feels like a heart attack, but I know enough about panic attacks that this is probably a panic attack. Cause that makes more sense. So, yeah. Yeah. So to so circle back around, the question he asked me was, do you feel abused? Okay. Okay. And um, I realized that I did. Mm -hmm. I realized that what they were ex doing is exploiting my brilliant mind. And back then I didn't think I had a brilliant mind, but they were exploit exploiting my brilliant mind to solve problems that they wouldn't pay money to correct. So there were fundamental issues in their software and I could work around them. And mm -hmm. rather than pay a group of developers to actually fix the software, they just exploited my brain. And it was that question. I was like, oh, crap. No, this is, this is not a good situation for me. Mm. And I don't, I don't blame the company at all at this point. You know, I had clearly gotten myself into it. And 
had I had the knowledge now that I do then, I would have gone to someone and said, hey, this is what's happening. This is what you need to fix. The self-advocacy side of that is really important because folks with ADHD, we often struggle with that because we've spent so much time messing up and doing things the wrong way. And, and often it starts in school, right? Where I didn't do my homework or I didn't get a B minus on this test like I thought I was going to. I failed it and I have no idea why that happened. And so we start to think of ourselves as flawed and broken and all of that shame builds up. And we never learn how to advocate for ourselves from a place of strength. When we do advocate for ourselves, it's usually because we know we messed something up and we're scrambling to cover that up or get away with it anyway, or just be forgiven, hopefully. And so once we get to the workplace, without those advocacy skills, we might be trying to communicate around a problem and we think we're saying one thing, the person we're talking to thinks we're saying something else. And so when we come into work and say, so what do you have for me today? And they're like, this, this, and this, because they didn't maybe get the message that we need to have more input in what we're doing. Or maybe they didn't care. Both of those things are all obviously possible. But I think that hiding in there somewhere is that the need to learn how to self-advocate effectively. Am I, am I on to something here? I, I think so. Um, and I'm not trying to coach you or anything like that. I'm just picking out the story elements. Yeah. Well, so I look back at it as had I known I had ADHD and were I being treated at that point, I look at this as an impulse control issue. Like, I wish I had stuck around and talked to the president again and said, hey, and self-advocated for myself, said, hey, we had this discussion. This is what came in on the tin. This is not the product that I ordered. So how are we going to you know, change this? Mm-hmm. Instead, my own impulsivity at the time just led me to blow up the bridge, not burn it, but literally blow up the bridge. You know, and when you talk about self-advocacy, it, it's so interesting because you know, there is a level of self-advocacy that one has to do to their parents, to their school, to their job, et cetera. But there's also a level of self-self-advocacy, right? So you to describe, you know, laying on the couch thinking you're having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. I haven't quite gotten there, but there are definitely times to this present day that I lay on the couch and I'm like, oh, I just don't feel like doing anything. You're such a loser. Why are you doing this? And like, I have to learn the skill and I have of self-advocating for myself. And, and being able to tell myself, well, that's interesting because earlier today you brought, it, brought in a new client, so I'm not sure why at 8 p.m. you're considering yourself a loser, Keith. I don't think this matches reality. My conversation with myself went a little bit differently, but I had that this week on Tuesday where I had some clients who sort of canceled on me and I was in this sort of like, maybe something's happening, maybe something isn't happening because a lot of stuff got shifted around on me that day. Um, I had a client in crisis who then wound up not wanting to have me help. So I was like, oh, great. I moved a whole lot of stuff around, including this interview with you right now. But now I'm not doing the thing that I thought I was doing. Great. Um, And I remember sitting on the couch and being like, I don't want to do anything. And recognizing immediately that some of it was the nature of how many transitions I had already experienced by like 9 a.m. And that I was just feeling in a state of flux because I wasn't sure what the day was going to look like because so many things had changed. And also going, yeah, but I've worked, I've worked the last like 10 days straight, like with clients, like over the weekend, which I don't ordinarily do, but it's the way it fell. And so instead of sort of getting on my case, and I did feel a little bit like a loser, a little bit like, a, I'm going to 
I think I might use this time and not really do much, but that's awful because I should be doing stuff because it's a Tuesday. <laughs> and instead, I just was like, except that I did stuff over the weekend and I kind of ended up giving myself permission to take about three hours and sort of chill, go for a walk, do some exercising, that kind of stuff. You allowed yourself a whole three hours off. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> hmm. So the, the coaching question be, so what did you learn from this experience? I learned that giving myself permission was useful. And I learned that um, exercising is a thing I need to do better with because I'm not doing so well with it. And I learned that Big Mouth is a highly inappropriate show on Netflix because I watched that too. <laughs> so, so nothing about the, the, the 10 days straight working. Oh, well, I didn't know. I didn't learn that because I already knew that. Ah, okay. That's why I didn't include that in there. Yeah, I knew that was too much. Yeah. Um, and that's just the nature of this season for me. Like that's going to, I'm in the middle of my heaviest workshop season. So I'm going to be tired until like December. It's just the way it is. You know, we're, we're very similar in that aspect. Um, not that I have a heavy workshop season. I have zero workshops at the moment, but my brain tends to activate towards the end of September and it just carries me through till like January. And then really? you, won't, you won't hear from me in January because <laughs> my brain is just like, it, it disconnects itself. It moves out for a while. It takes a nice vacation. And then it comes back to me in like February because there's so much going on with just the season. I mean, there's, there's an ADHD conference, um, during October, it's ADHD awareness month. And so during this year's ADHD awareness month and last year, I did a video a day for YouTube. Um, not that they've gotten a ton of views, but it's just something I want to consistently wanted to consistently do. Um, and my brain just activates. It's just like, this is change season. Let's do stuff. I don't know if it's something about the crisp fall air or what, but it's interesting. Yeah. And, and it's also important to recognize that that we sort of work in those cycles, right? Adults, kids, doesn't matter. We all have those, those little flow times when we're really productive and then those other down times where just not as much is happening. And, and everybody has them regardless of whether they have ADHD. It's just, I think in ADHD, they're more pronounced. I remember pre-diagnosis in the IT career, um, there would be days that I would give myself permission to do nothing because I knew that the next day I would probably do twice as much as my, my average coworker, or mm -hmm. I don't want to say average neurotypical coworker. Um, and that's something that I, I came to realize about my IT career in general is that I tended to work really hard the first three days of the week. So I got my five days of work done by Wednesday and then Thursday and Friday, I kind of slacked off. I now know that was just how I work. It's ADHD related, whatever, whatever, and whatever. But it was an interesting kind of opportunity to reflect back and go, oh, well, that's just kind of your natural work cycle. Let's say we work with that rather than against it. An element hiding inside of that is once you start tangling with ADHD, you start to learn how you work. Whereas People who are neurotypical, um, I really want to say people with neurotypicality because it's like people with ADHD and people with mm -hmm. autism and people with this, but every neurotypical people just get to be neurotypical people. But where I was going with that is people with neurotypicality. There's like 10 people listening to this podcast who are getting that joke right now. Um, that's okay though. Um, your, our neurotypical friends 
don't need to think about that. They don't need to think about how they work because the way they work already matches society and expectations and how the world tends to go. So even though they have those little patterns and rhythms, they may or may not be tuned into them. Um, I actually take Thursdays off because I do work on Sundays. And it, it is really tough because the world expects you to be ready to meet on a Thursday. Uh, you know, it yeah. seems like every webinar that's out there, it's like, join us on Thursday. And I'm like, well, that's nice, bro. But no. But what I've started to think about is the world would not be where it is were it not for ADHD. Um, it's, I don't think the technology that we have would have been possible had not had ADHD not been there because you almost have to have the ability to hyper-focus like an ADHD or to develop some of the great stuff that has happened. Mm -hmm. I think that's been the case throughout history. The, the sadness to it is that uh, people with neurotypicality, um, which I think, by the way, is a title I put in my, my list for podcast episode titles, um, <laughs> is uh, people with neurotypicality wanted routines and structures that, that we just don't necessarily get. And so now I'm struggling, I'm struggling to try to describe this, but uh, you know, it's basically without ADHD, the world we have now would not exist. And, it's, and what sucks is that because it's considered as a disorder, there's something wrong with us. And it's like, well, no, maybe just the, maybe the shirt doesn't fit. The world just doesn't fit our brain, but our brains do brilliant things. So that's okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that it's, and I'll even go beyond ADHD. I think it's just neurodiversity in general, right? Because sure. certainly there's plenty of folks who are autistic that are, or with high functioning autism that are contributing huge things in Silicon Valley right now. And even, even thinking back to like, Abraham Lincoln and all the thought that's gone in from historical scholars around how his bouts of melancholy, which we now call depression, how those periods of depression may have helped him more effectively manage the events of the Civil War because he was comfortable in really emotionally challenging situations and figuring out how to motivate anyway. So I'm with you, the, the neurodiversity and it, I'm Certainly, we can credit ADHD for, for pieces of it because we tend to think outside the box a little bit and come up with ideas other people maybe don't because they don't need to. They're like, no, you just do it this way. And we're like, but that's so hard. What if we just do it this other way that's easier? And then our neurotypical friends are like, wow, that is easier and cool. We, we tend to think outside the box. Yeah. You know, this brings me back. Apparently, this is my therapy session for my last corporate job, but <laughs> it brings me back because because that that um, office manager, Felicia, used to be in meetings with me. And she every time that we got out of a meeting, she would be like, I just love the brain, the way your brain works. It, you can just see it in your face, all of the ideas just coming all of a sudden. And of course, I didn't realize that was an aspect of ADHD until I knew what ADHD was. So just being mindful of time and seeing that we're coming up on the the end of this interview. Do you have any ending essentials around ADHD or your experience with IT and, and or self-advocacy or anything like that that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, I, so I think ADHD does not have to be as hard as we're making it. Um, you know, we, we look at treating it and indeed you said treat um, earlier. And I, I look at um, my coaching as more making 
life easier for the person with ADHD. And that means cutting out sometimes rather severely on the BS that they're kind of willing to put up with. You know, originally I was going to come on and talk about, you know, this is the way you're killing your kids ADHD, but all of them really um, boil down to the amount of stuff that you're forcing a child or forcing yourself to do. Uh, my top three would be overscheduling your kid to the point where they, they have to do math homework at 930 and then go to bed at 10. It's like, well, that's nice. So he's had soccer practice. He comes home. He gets a bite to eat. There is no alone time, no ability for him to actually decompress. He has to do his math homework, but then he has to be in bed by a certain time. And you expect different results the next day. Right. Um, the other one, and I, I've said this numerous times, is you know some of the chores that we force ourselves to do are just ridiculous. Um, my mother-in-law once told me that because I have two pets and there are two of us in our household, I have to vacuum four times a week. Well, you know what? I'll just replace carpet more often than you do. I'll vacuum once, maybe twice a week. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for the advice. Um, and my favorite is the idea that you have to empty garbage on certain days of the week. So I understand that, you know, if you're in a house or something, the garbage man only comes certain times for the week. But if he comes twice a week, you don't have to empty garbage twice a week. You only have to do it once if your household size is, is to support that. Um, and this came from a parent that I was talking to that was making her son check all of the, the waste baskets in the house three times a week. And he had to empty them, whether there was like a tissue in it or it was just full to the brim. And then she was wondering why he then struggled to sit down and like really focus on homework. And I was like, well, it's because your rule just does not make sense to his mind. And to, to force himself to do that takes so much willpower that by the time it's done, it's done. His willpower is gone. Yeah. Wow. Three, that's three times a week to empty all the trashes that. That's amazing to me. We just do it whenever the trash is going out to the curb for the, for the garbage collectors. That's, that's when we worry about it. Yeah. And you know, so, and the other thing um, is not that the whole world has ADHD, but the strategies and techniques and everything that I suggest, I think apply to anybody's life. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a parent that has a child uh, that, that has ADHD, start looking at implementing these strategies in your own life and being a role model for your child, right? I it, agree. It, this doesn't have to be a strategy just for Johnny. This can be a strategy for you too. What is it that you're doing that doesn't make any sense to your brain? Well, cut that out or find a way to cut, to minimize it. Um, and then realize that little Johnny's brain has a whole bunch more stuff that just doesn't make sense to his brain. Um, and he's going to require more cuts. Yeah. And let's, let's play inside his sandbox. Yes, absolutely. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.